This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Hello, my good people. Welcome back. Today, we're speaking with a gentleman by the name of Greg Champion. What a great name. Greg is a seasoned recovery professional who's been sober for over 25 years and co-founded a very effective and very successful treatment program out in Los Angeles called Startup Recovery. Startup Recovery uses Greg's proprietary program that he created after years of experience and research called the Recovery Playbook. We are very excited to hear more about this program as it is making waves in the recovery world. Let's talk to Greg. Greg Champion, welcome to Champagne Problems. Hello, gentlemen. We're really excited to talk to you. I've heard your name many, many times. I know we got introduced through our, our mutual friend. Shout out to Pete. We've seen your stuff. We've seen your treatment center. We've, we're, we're really excited to dig into all that you have created and, and founded. But let's start with giving our listeners a little background on you. Um, you know, as much as you want to share, start from birth if you want, uh, but all the way up to entering the recovery profession. Perfect. Perfect. Well, well, first of all, Robbie and Patrick, thank you for having me on this. It's a, uh, you, you guys do a really good job. And I, and I like Robbie, I was watching one of your videos the other day and um, you know, you talked about how you um, were blasting people on the internet for, for drinking, you know, and you lost a lot of friends That's right. and then you, you got a better perspective of what recovery looks like. And, and, and I'm a big believer that sobriety and recovery are two different things, but I had to get sober to find recovery. So, and it's funny you brought up from birth because my story actually begins there. Yeah. My mom had me in 1968 at 40 years old and women in 1968 at 40 were not having babies. Huh. Um, it was, Hey, there's a doctor down the road. There's a clinic down the road. You know, this kid's going to come out with no toes <laughs> or, or, you know, a bit off, yeah. which I probably am a bit off, but you know, it was almost like a rejection even before I arrived. And, uh, and I, I came out and I was, I was normal and everything and um, 11 toes. <laughs> yeah. 11 toes. Um, but it's funny, uh, the, the umbilical cord is wrapped around my neck twice. And, wow. and the, the doctor, I have a birth scar right here where the doctor nipped me. So right from the get go, wow. I, I was taking on, I was taking on you know, someone was poking the bear, <laughs> yep. no pun intended. Wow. And then really alcohol affected me very early in life. My, my father was killed when I was uh, four and a half years old in a drunk on drunk car crash. Oh my God. And, you know, I, I can remember distinctly my mom coming in thinking I'm waking me up to go to school. And, you know, she had to bear that news to me that the, that, that he was killed. And, <laughs> and what I can tell you guys is that, um, that, moment the next day when i went to school and i didn't have a dad i immediately felt different yeah that feeling of different uh came over me and what i will tell you is that over the next four or five years i became addicted to three things one was violence i became a bully um two i loved attention i had blonde curly hair and blue eyes and a lot of women and babysitters and were, were paying attention to me i like that and then last but not least, fantasy. I, I grew up wanting to be Rocky Balboa and then Luke Skywalker and then the bandit, Smokey and the Bandit, you know, <laughs> that black Trans Am. Yeah. And I would just fantasize and I, and I was raised as an only child. And so you have to create your own friends. You know, when, when I was playing catch, it was me and the garage door, mm -hmm. you know? And so all those things kind of were the 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 groundwork for me and, and really wanting to medicate wanting to just check out and then ultimately um that served me for a while and then what i also like to share too guys is that in eighth there was a male neighbor who was inappropriate with me hmm. and i bring that up because i think it's important that men share that type of story yeah and so that really confused me you know really confused me and the perfect storm happened for me, like many of us, I started drinking and using around 12 or 13. And I think it's kind of a, a, a perfect triangle. You're going through puberty, you're going into your freshman year of high school, and guess what's available? 
drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> and, and so I rode that storm for a while and it served me. I, I was on the football team. I was on the track team, the baseball team. Socially, it was all acceptable. And I, and I, and I grew up in San Diego which is right next to a little town known as Tijuana. <laughs> right. I <laughs> got some pretty good stuff down Old there. TJ. I heard. <laughs> you know, gentlemen, let me just tell you, at 15, 16 years old, I'm going across the border, an international border, because here's why. I want to grow up. I want to be an adult. Yeah. I want to drink beer. I want to do shots. You know, And, and all that sort of uh, being hurried to get to grow up. You know, I love shortcuts. You know? Um, and one of the reasons that I got in trouble um, all throughout my life was shortcuts. And I can remember when I was in detention, they would say, Greg, I need you to write on the board 200 times, I will not talk in class, right? And gentlemen, this is how I wrote it. I, 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 will, 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 no, 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 no. Yeah, 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 I like that. To get it done, and I never got the message. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. And so... Fast forward, I chose a great university for higher learning known as Arizona State University. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Because that's, that's where you guys were. That's where the best alcoholics and the best drug addicts were. And I fit mm -hmm. right in for five years. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and again, not, no, real, no real bang up, no, no legal moments until my graduation night when I got my first DUI. Mm. And I remember like growing up, they say, you know, when you get your college degree, you, you, you now enter the real world. And so here I was on day one of the real world with a, with a DUI. And what proceeded to happen, guys, was I took a job at, at a local TV station. I had the overnight shift, which means I was getting out at four or five in the morning. Well, not many girls want to date a guy who gets out at four or five in the morning. But as you know, we have lower companions who we will find at <laughs> Have in the morning. Yeah. I met, I, I met them. Yeah. And those lower companions were drug dealers, people that wanted to use with me and girls. I couldn't bring home to mom. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And in a very short amount of time from 22 to 24, I got arrested eight times. Damn. And, and this was a kid who went to private Catholic school, went to private high school, had a college degree. Now came from a nice middle-class family. And, and I was really effing up big time. And I got arrested for DUI. I got arrested for assault. I got arrested for driving with a suspended license. I even got arrested twice in 24 hours in New Orleans. And here's the alcoholic thinking, gentlemen. <laughs> I walk up to this big Irish cop on Friday night and I go, listen, I need to know the rules of this place. <laughs> he goes, don't piss in my streets and don't fight in my streets. So Robbie, what two things did this knucklehead get arrested for? <laughs> That's like pissing on the guy you just beat yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Yeah, yeah. It's a one-two punch. No pun intended. So, right, so, right. So, so really, and it also it escalated. Just like, just like our disease, you know, it says it's progressive. Each time I tried the formula of Greg plus drugs and alcohol, it got worse. And I decided I needed shortcuts. That my $19,000 uh, salary was not, you know, I was still eating top ramen and drinking Mountain Dew. And that's not what, you know, the, the American story was supposed to be. So one of my lower companions goes, hey, listen, I know you have a lot of friends on the East Coast. Why don't we start shipping marijuana to them? I said, what's that look like? He goes, well, we'll, we'll FedEx a couple pounds. And we two pounds, four pounds, eight pounds. Eventually, we were doing 50 pounds on, in suitcases on flights and just this. And, and the thing that came over me most was shame. And I bring this up, guys, because... I did not go to those good schools or be or live in a nice neighborhood or, or have my certain value set that went against who I am to be a drug dealer. And so I had to get loaded to fly those stuff there. I was drinking double vodka cranberries. I was doing cocaine. I was smoking pot. I even dropped acid on one flight because I needed to imagine being on acid. It's a great way to calm down. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's how sick See, we this are. one like, works. Yeah. works. So, yeah. so, so guys, I, I was really in a, I was just a fucking mess. Part of my French, you know? Yeah. And it came to, it came to uh, an end where I got arrested in the airport with 50 pounds of pot. I get in front of the judge. He goes through my record. He says, man, you're a good kid. What happened? And I utter these three words. I don't know. I don't mm -hmm. know because the Greg that stood in front of the judge was sober. And the animal that was doing all this behavior 
was under the influence of drugs and alcohol. That that, mm-hmm. that, that was the way he operated under life, in life. Well, the, dr- the judge says, well, here's what I know, son. If I see you in my courtroom in the next six months, I'm going to give you the five years of prison hanging over your head. Now, gentlemen, mm-hmm. I, I stated before, I had blonde, curly hair, bright blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Prison is not we something don't. that where I need to be ending up. Okay. No, it isn't. So, so for a few days, I'm scared. But 18 days later, I'm in my little sports car. I've drank six Moosehead. I've smoked a couple joints, and I have a couple bindles of Coke in my pocket. And I'm going to the party of the year. Now, by this time, my high school friends have left me, and my college friends have left me. I, I'm I'm beyond their help. So I'm going to a party where I know nobody, but I have to be there because I have fear of missing out. (laughs) FOMO. But I also have another character defect. I am a people pleaser. So the first guy that walks up to me and he kind of looks like you, Robbie, and says, hey, you got any toots on you? Oh, I got some toots on me. We go down the stairs. We go in my little sports car. I pull out my CD case. This is the early 90s. Duran Duran, no less. Oh my yeah. God. This is a movie scene. Yeah. And I, I start lining up some lines and I put it in front of him. And guess what he puts in front of me? His badge. His badge. <laughs> San Diego Police Department. Yeah, what an there asshole. You, <laughs> you know? Now I'm like, okay, five years of prison. I, I, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in my jail cell. I wake up the next morning and I'm in the fetal position. And that demoralization that is talked about in the big book so much is just yep. over me. I, I am done. And then out of the corner of the room, I hear this voice say, Greg, there's a better way. Greg, there's a better way. I look up. There is no officer. There's no other inmates with me. It's just a voice. And it says, call your mother. Call your mother. And I'm like, call my mother? The last person I want to call is my mother. She's in her 60s. She's semi-retired. She doesn't want to hear about her son going to prison for five years. But I take direction from this voice and I call my mom and I tell her what happened. And she says, Gregory, because all, all parents call you by their, your full name, yes. especially when you're in trouble, yes. right? <laughs> I'm Robert, Robert, R- Robbie, Robert, Robert, Robbie, were you Robert James or Robert? You probably even got the middle That's name right. thrown in, didn't you? Yeah. So I go to church that night. It's a six o'clock mass. The priest ends the mass and he says, hey, tonight we're going to have confession." And I have three priests over here and I have three priests over here. Go behind any door and and, and let yourself go in terms of what you have to say. Well, my first thought is, wow, if I go get confession, I can go out tonight. Oh, man. Yeah. That's that's kind of the the games I would play, you know, tit for tat. Well, I pick door number two. I walk in and there's this beautiful older man with gray hair and lightning blue eyes and a white cloak. And he says, son sit down and tell me your sins. <clears throat> and I'm literally two feet away from, you know, in terms of how, how close we are. And I go, Father, when I smoke a lot of pot, I show up on Christmas on December 27th. When I drink a lot of beer, I walk in the bars and I hurt people. When I do cocaine, I date three women at the same time and they have no idea. And when I do all three, I fly large amounts of marijuana to the East Coast. He says, son, stop. He's like, do you think you have a problem with drugs and alcohol? No. And then he gives me that look that all of our mentors, coaches, and sponsors have given us. Like, you're bullshitting me. You better tell me the truth. And I say, well, it's funny, Father. You're the second man in my life to ever ask me that question. And he goes, who was the first? I said, my stepfather. When my mom remarried when I was 9 or 10 years old. And this guy was a World War II vet. He was on Omaha Beach there as, as a 19-year-old, as you saw played out in Saving Private Ryan. He's one of those guys. He took the GI Bill, went to Northwestern. And the best thing that he brought in the house, guys, 17 years of AA sobriety. Wow. But it wasn't going to work for me because I was already, the, the rocket had been launched. Not yet. Yeah, yeah. process yeah. began. Yep. Yeah. And so I say to the I say to the priest, yeah, my stepfather. And he says, well, what was your stepfather's name? I said, Walt Janicki. Priest reaches out, grabs my hand, and squeezes it and says, I was Walt Janicki's first sponsor. Wow. Oh, my God. You're going to make me cry, Greg. 
Holy cow. <laughs> That'll give you a nice shot. <laughs> There's hey, a shot. Hey, <laughs> Patrick, th- th- this, is the, this is the thing. I was so thick-headed. I needed this God shot, this, this act of providence. Mm-hmm. And I just thought to myself, oh, my God, whatever this man tells me to do next, I have to do. I'm at the Y in the road. There are no other exits, you know? And so what he says, he says, look, your sins don't belong here. They belong four blocks up at the Alano Club. And there happens to be an A meeting starting at 730. And I think you should go. And that was 11-7-1994, gentlemen. And that is my sobriety date. God. (laughs) So so, so I, I give you that as my journey that got me here. But as we go on with this interview, you'll see that the secret to me having sobriety almost 28 years is my, I remain willing to be willing. And what I'm saying, Patrick or Robbie, if you tell me, hey, I've been sober for another five years because I stand on my head and, and, and chant every morning, guess who's standing on his head tomorrow morning and chanting? I will try whatever you suggest because here's why. When we were drinking and using Guess what I was doing? I was trying yeah. whatever Give you suggested. Yeah. So there's my background. Golly. Dude, I love it, man. Our stories are very similar. <laughs> I mean, all, all, all the way down the line to the end to where, you know, divine intervention took place. So I love it, man. Thanks for sharing all that with us. Well, just quickly, Greg, you know, the last place that I got my DUI and had my last sip of alcohol was La Jolla in San Diego. Where? What bar? Not a bar. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) An alley or no. Well, I was at a friend's house and flew out there from here and he kind of asked me to leave. And so I went and hung out in a parking lot uh, outside of a liquor store Drank, 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 got a, decided I needed to go back to the airport and head home uh, and got a DUI on the way, which was my fourth, yep. which was back then, this was 16, 17 years ago, that back then it was less consequences, but still looking at prison. So similar kind yep. of situation, still looking at a prison sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So dude, let's talk about what you're doing in, in the recovery space. So you get, you get sober. I'm assuming you got pretty heavily involved in the 12-step community. Where are we going from there? So, Patrick, what, what happened was um, I got involved in early on. Like the first two years, I was very scared of, because, again, I had to go to court, you know. And what I'll tell you guys is that when Father, by the way, his name was Father Bill Wilson. Yeah, I saw that yeah. on your website. I was yeah. like, yeah. So, Even bigger gotcha. Yeah, another, another slide. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so what I will tell you is that Father Bill would, you know, we would get six months, nine months, and he'd go to court with me. And literally, it was like having Obi-Wan Kenobi in there. He'd be like, yeah. he's a good guy. And also, the judge wave, would, wave his hand. Yeah, wave his hand. The guy would go, okay, continuance. He, he's a good guy. Like, like, literally. And so I always yeah. think of myself, the collar is more powerful than the robe, <laughs> you know? And, and I got very, because I was scared, scared. So I was really scared sober. You know, I, I just, yeah, I had to check the list. And I just want to say to, to your listeners that it's okay to be scared sober because what happened oh, yeah. was yeah. The, the more time I got, the more distance I got from my last drink, you know, yeah. and, and the steps came into, to the fold. And what I will say is that, um, you know, I re- had a real trouble around the fourth and fifth step. I, I, I wasn't willing to go there. I wasn't willing to, to share my secrets. And so yeah. what happened was father bill, and I, we, we, we went different ways and I would go find another home group, find another sponsor gets through step one, two, and three. And then I would, and then I would do pull a Kaiser Soze and disappear, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and I only say that. So I hope your listeners know that, listen, it is crucial. You hit the step four and five because yeah. Yeah. I don't know anybody who's been sober, who hasn't gotten through that. You, you got to get to the other side of that. So I, I just want to preface that. And then really, I didn't, I didn't really, I wasn't all in on, on 12 step or recovery for about five or 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, what I, what happened for me guys is I moved to LA and I became addicted to work and the work I did was in their entertainment business. And I thought to myself, all right, I have this two years of sobriety. I, I have this restart of life. I'm going to just focus all my attention on work. And at 26, 27 years old, I'm not going to die from being a workaholic. You're just, it's all good. And really what I saw was that my career was steadily going up. 
you know, I was accomplishing things, but where I was falling short was in relationships. Mm -hmm. the, the women I dated or the women who dated me, it was all, it was bad choices. It was, um, sometimes it was medicating using, um, women or them using me. Um, a lot of false pride was there. Um, yeah. and you know, it wasn't until I got a mentor at 31 years old and really took direction business-wise. And I bring this in because it, it has a full swing of things. Um, where he said, listen, you got to stop wasting time with people and places and things that don't suit your future. Yep. And, and really, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. He said, look, you can go date three women at the same time. But if you took that same energy and put it towards like a business, a company, a vocation, you would be or one woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, would, you, would, you would take off. And it, literally, I, I listened to him. And within a year, I had my own company. Wow. And so part of my journey, which is now in the tagline of my company, shifting addiction to passion is what I did. I really became addicted to my passion, which was work. And then the financial crisis of 2008 hit. And both my companies at that time took major, major hits. My nest egg went away. I, I really got my ass handed to me. Oh and, man! Hey, real quick, were were those companies in the recovery space? No, or were those no, in no. The, the, one was totally in the tech different. space, and one yeah. was in um, uh, uh, branded entertainment. I, I used to do commercials and, and websites for for Fortune 500 brands, so I was not in the, in the recovery space. And and, and so I, I I get out of 2008 2009 because guess what? I go back into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and yeah. what I find there is my locker room. <laughs> I find that yeah. there's guys there who share their pain, share their shame. They're successful men, they're successful fathers, they're successful um, businessmen. And all of a sudden I begin to build my tribe and guess what? I'm able to lick my wounds business-wise. But after a while, I start to lose interest in what I was doing. I just do. And around 2015, 16, this little lady comes up to me after I speak at the podium and she goes, you would make a great group facilitator. It's like a female Yoda. Okay. She's 75 years old. And, and I'm like, what's a group facilitator. And honest to God, this is seven years ago. And she goes, well, it's when you come in, the, it's when you come into a rehab or a sober living and you kind of help the, help the group get through some life issues. And by your story, mm -hmm. it sounds like you have some pretty good tools. And I'm like, me, tools no way what are you talking about <laughs> and what i did is i began to go work at a couple um rehabs in malibu and newport beach as as a group facilitator and they began to like me um i began to learn the lingo of the of the recovery industry the difference between an executive mm -hmm. director and a clinical director how to how to do mm -hmm. kipu notes k-i-p-o-p-u notes or the, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah oh yeah right <laughs> run that thing up and down yeah, right? you know, all about kipu <laughs> And, and what I what I want to say is I'm so glad I did that. I'm so glad I started at the bottom because I did the same thing in my prior career. I started as a production assistant. I worked my way up to an executive producer because you you got you got to do that. You got to know every job on the way up. I feel. And so here I started at the bottom as as a, as a group facilitator, and I learned the language. And then eventually I got private clients, and then eventually I met my partner Jeff Van at a twelve step meeting, and he says, "Hey, listen, I'm watching what you're doing with people, and you're helping." people heal and you have a different way of doing things. What's your dream? I said, I want to bring my coaching curriculum into a, into a headquarters. And Jeff had a vast um, experience with real estate. And so he goes, let me help you with that. And so we formed the company startup recovery um, that allowed for me to have the coaching curriculum in the building to bring people who want to have 90 days of, you know, solid sobriety, safety, community, accountability, along with my coaching curriculum. And also we started doing reps. And, and really guys, the curriculum is this, I'm sober, now what? Yeah. I'm gonna let the therapist, I'm gonna let your sponsor, your home group, I'm gonna let that handle the sobriety. But once you start getting sober, you're gonna start to have feelings and you're gonna need to deal with those stuff. So out of that, we came up with the digital scrub where I would say, hey guys, take out your phone. We need to get rid of all those lower companions. And Robbie, any girl 
with with a first name and a city or a street corner attached to her, she's got to go. You know, <laughs> all all thirty of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and then we and then we do uh, the ten intentions, which is goal setting. What do you want to do in the next ten? Uh, what do you want to do in the next year? And then we do a writing exercise called the right to write. I felt I found that writing really helped me in my recovery. Yeah, what is that? I, I was looking at that in the playbook. I ask you like seven questions. The first question is, what would be the title of your book up until this point? Mm. Right? And I have you sit there and we work on it, what that title would be, right? And then we got to go to the cover art. I walk into an Amazon bookstore. We go over to the bestseller shelf and, and your book's there. What does your cover art look like? Right? And then we got to get into the meat and bones. I want to know the beginning, middle, and in quotes, the end. Well, the beginning mm-hmm. is probably some childhood trauma, drama, or pain or shame. The yeah. middle is the, is the car crash. And then the end is the redemption. And what happens is I work through some other more questions with you, but, but what happens is now you have basically the architecture for either a short story or a book. Yeah. And what I found, and, and gentlemen, I ended up writing a book. Oh, nice. You know, because... Yeah. It was it was based upon my first three or four years in college or first three or four years in Los Angeles. And and it was about staying sober. It was about chasing the Hollywood dream. It was about, uh, you know, and, 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 and it really helped me heal wounds. The power yeah. of it coming from your heart, down your right arm, onto a piece of paper. There's a lot of power in that. And so we do that. Um, Another one of the coaching lessons that I like is the, um, we do, um, there's a documentary that I show everybody called The Mask You Live In. And it's an award-winning documentary. And it's about, hey, the three of us were taught this. Hey, be successful in sports. Sleep with a lot of women. Make a lot of money. Become powerful. And that mask, we try to hide behind that, that thing. And what we need to do is take the mask off. And we need to do, take dancing lessons. Play the piano start painting and start to develop balanced men. And so what I try to do is I'll get a type A personality on the couch over here and I'll say, yeah, you're a successful CEO and you do all this, but you, your, your relationship with your kids sucks, yep. yeah. you know? And so I really try to, as they leave us, especially in that is I use the documentary as a framework to get them to become balanced men. And so really in the heart of it, guys, it is I'm sober. Now what? Absolutely love it. Golly. Uh, fascinating. All right. So go back to the creation of the recovery playbook that was prior to startup recovery. No, it was, it was uh, simultaneously. Simultaneous. Okay. But give me some of your thought process on that. I mean, I love the fact that you created a curriculum, like how does that come about? And what happened was, um, I had these two companies champion media entertainment and one cubicle, which was a LinkedIn for 20 somethings. And I was flowing along pretty good at 2007, 2008, 2009. And then the financial crisis kind of took me out. But meanwhile, I was a guest lecturer at USC. And this one professor took a liking to me and it was an entrepreneurship class. And so he would invite me to the class every semester to teach one class. And what happened was that as I'm, so basically I was able to teach entrepreneurship and I was able to, uh, and since I had been a, a Hollywood writer and executive producer, I knew the format. I also knew the format around how to do a startup, a 10 page pitch deck. So I had a lot of lessons. I also guys, I had good bosses and I had bad bosses and I learned more from the bad bosses. Why? Mm-hmm. Cause they teach you what not to do. Mm. So what I was bringing into these rehabs and these sober livings was life lessons that had worked for me. And so here's how the curriculum, to, to answer your question, Robbie, is I would go in and I go, okay, there'd be six women and five men. And I go, hey, listen, we're going to do the right to write, right? And I would see the excitement in the room and everybody turn in their papers and, and, and help each other, right? And I would go home and go, well, that was an A, right? Then I would bring another one in and I, oh my God, no one paid attention. Two people left. Well, that was a D or F. I, I pushed that to a side. And yeah. each time I tried out a life lesson, I would grade myself and the A's and B's are what made it into the recovery playbook. And I think what happened was with the naming of the recovery playbook was I knew sobriety is too small. The recovery was, 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 was a more, was, was a, a wider 
broader word. And, and to your point, Robbie, when I watch some of your videos, wellness is even a much wider word. And, and I'll talk about that further in our conversation yeah, yeah. too. So, and the playbook just came from me being, my last name's champion. I'm a former athlete, you know? And here's my fucking, here's my fucking playbook, you know? <laughs> Hell yeah. and, 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 maybe, and maybe one of these plays will be your Hail Mary, you know? Um, and so that's kind of how I did it. Yeah. Was I, I, I kind of group tested it. Then I started having private clients. And the private clients were this, were people who had three years of sobriety five years of sobriety, seven years of sobriety. And the three years of sobriety was, hey, listen, yeah. I'm going through a divorce. I want to keep my sobriety. Please help me get through the divorce. Great. Let's go do this. A woman had seven years of sobriety. She's like, I'm a yoga teacher. I'm sick of working for people. How do I open up my own, own yoga studio and keep my sobriety? And I would give her lessons there. Another guy wanted to move out of law and move over to real estate. And so I, I, I ended up setting up meetings with him with sober real estate agents. Right? Because that way they could talk about the business and recovery yeah. all in the same coffee. Mm -hmm. and, and, and all of that became what is the recovery playbook today. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking like the 12 play. I mean, it's not rec recovery, like like typically recovery specific. I mean, you, you could essentially deliver this stuff to, you know, just broad coaching clients that don't have a background of addiction or mental health. Patrick, that, that's where we're going with it. Yeah, yeah, good. And I'll give you a litmus test. So a few years, a couple of years ago, we're doing some videos and the, the cameraman is filming us as we're doing each play, right? Yeah. He goes home and does the 10 intentions. He's, he's a normie. Sure. Right? One of them was uh, get engaged to my girlfriend. Number four was get a raise. And number seven was get a Tesla. And I'm not kidding you. Within 30 days, yeah. he got engaged, he got a raise, and he got a Tesla. And so we were just like, all right, yeah. it, it works for Norbies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's always been one of the things that I've always tried. In, in our podcast here, you know, our most a lot of our listeners are gray area drinkers or people that just want to set, you know, clear boundaries and, and have a healthier relationship with alcohol. We, we don't necessarily focus on addiction and recovery all the, you know, we do sometimes, but... You know, one of the one of my passions since I've been in recovery is being able to bridge the gap between, you know, the the principles of recovery and how those can be applied to people in the real world and how they can help solve their problems or help them increase their quality of life. So I'm, I always love hearing how people are bridging that gap and and making making these recovery principles um, more mainstream and and can articulate that in a way where people that don't necessarily experience addiction or mental health struggles can, can buy into that model. So uh, I love it, man. One of the things that I, I think, I think our country needs more help on is if you think about most people's journeys around alcoholism, addiction, something went wrong in their childhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then that child is forced to keep it as a secret because you don't want to seem like the weirdo. Okay. And I've, I've said this and I, maybe one day I'll get the, the balls enough to write it, but I want to write a, an article that is every fourth grade class in America needs the 12 steps. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. And, and, and what I mean by that, if you just look at the first step, I'm powerless over the bully and my life has become unmanageable. Yes. I'm powerless over the helicopter parent and my life has become unmanageable. Yeah. I'm powerless over the babysitter who's taking advantage of me and my life has become right. If you do that with every fourth grader and create a safe place where they can share their pain. Oh my right? God. Oh my God. Guess what? When it comes to, when it comes to puberty and that, that 12 to 13, they won't look for drugs because yeah. they've already started healing. They're ready. Yeah. They're ready. They're ready. Brilliant. That would be, that would be beautiful. God, it really would. That's awesome. Greg, that is <laughs> now you got my, I'm racing over here. Um, <laughs> So, you know, what's interesting, and just to kind of piggyback on what Patrick was saying, was so often, you know, the the strategies in helping, you know, back to the people that do suffer with addiction is is kind of a wellness or, or a lot of the well, holistic and the wellness yeah. uh, strategies where it's not one or the other. It's kind of just this big ball or, or what we call the wellness wheel, as you know, and there's a lot of psycho ed. There's a lot of, um, you know, identifying triggers and, and all the stuff that you, you kind of hear about in the traditional recovery space. But then it's almost as if now, and maybe this is 
I wouldn't say new as in the last like year or two, but new in as in the last decade that the the wellness piece is now be is infiltrating that, and it's becoming this whole, you know, mind body spirit strategy to get people just to kind of jar them back into a a healthier, more goal oriented, uh, more wellness focused life path. Uh, and it's, it just sounds like that's exactly where your, your program is and everything that you're, you, you've created is doing. I don't have a question. I'm just absolutely love it. <laughs> Uh-oh, here we go. What are you showing me? Startup wellness. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, man. This is why I wanted to get on this show so bad because uh, what we have found in the five years of doing startup recovery, yes, we're rooted in the 12 steps. Yes. We want you to go to therapy. Yes. You're going to coach with Greg but we're really people are using recovery tools beyond us, acupuncture, breath work, sound bath, yoga, Reiki, um, cold water therapy, cold water therapy, biohacking. Love it. And, and, and so we're sitting here as business owners going, okay, well, how do we capture that? How do we keep those people in our community? Well, this is why we're opening up startup wellness this fall here in Los Angeles. Yes. And so what you will get is this gentlemen, please come visit. We will. You will get Eastern medicine, which means you'll get herbs and nutrition. You'll get cupping, acupuncture, breath work, sound bath. Mm -hmm. You will then get clinical therapy. So whether you want to work on PTSD, trauma, grief, whatever, we'll have some clinical therapists there. You also get coaching, not just coaching from Greg, but we're going to do parent coaching, family coaching, yeah. dating coaching. Mm-hmm. And then last but not least, we're going to have some pretty cool machines that, that do the ice baths, the infrared uh, lighting, mm -hmm. all that as well, all under one big roof. And, uh, and we just feel like we, 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 we will capture a, a whole new tribe. And again, like to what you guys said, a tribe that's, that's normies. They're just wanting to have a little bit of you know, growth in their life. Yeah. And so I remember I, I pitched this to a 20 something and she says, you're telling me I can go to therapy, get a massage and have a smoothie all in the same place. <laughs> yep. like, yes. Yes. Heaven. It's called heaven. heaven. Yeah. Wow. Well, we're so, in sign me up. Yeah, if there's yeah, a membership, right? I'm in. Good. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your book, man. Well, I don't know if you guys are old enough to know what this artwork is, but it's, it's called a peachy folder. And in the 70s and 80s, this is what we had um, to bring our homework home in. And all the kids would draw on yes. it. And make a, I remember. Bobby remembers it. I don't. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So, so these drawings are some of the ones that I did as when I was a kid. Oh, cool. And then I used the ACDC writing for my name. <laughs> I used the, the Who logo for the Van fictional Halen. memoir. I see the Van I love Halen, it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, RH, what is it? Raise hell this summer, RHTS. Yeah, yeah. Miss O'Brien is hot. Miss O'Brien was a 200 pound nun in the eighth grade. So yeah. I, I was being a smart ass. Yeah. Um, but, but where this came out of was pain. Yeah. Where this book came out of was pain. And what I mean by that was I got fired from NBC and my girlfriend broke up with me on the same day. Ooh. And, and I remember how I reacted. I had sobriety. Um, and I, but I acted, this is what happened. I ended up on my, uh, apartment floor in the fetal position. Once again, I, I did not eat for, uh, four day, four days and lost 13 pounds. I called my mother every 20 minutes and, um, and I was really suffering from a broken heart. And I know a ton of people, men and women who have gone out over a broken heart. Mm -hmm. No question. And I probably was right there. I was really right there. And then a friend of mine says, Hey, I'm, I'm going to take you to lunch. And her name is Nancy Wong. And she was a, a, a young ABC executive at the time. And I began telling her what happened. And, and, and I, and I said, look, this girl broke up with me. Uh, I'm heartbroken. You know, I, I, I drive by her house at four in the morning to see if her car's there. I deliver flowers to her house and she sends them back to my office. It, you know, and she starts seeing all these little stories and she's like, listen, you need to write about this. I'm like, oh no, it's too painful. I can't write about this. She goes, no, you need to write about this. And so all of a sudden I began writing what was happening to me in real time over this breakup. And so she says, 20 days later, she goes, I'm gonna take you out to dinner, but bring the papers. I bring the papers. It's probably 30 pieces of paper, 30 pieces of paper. And I hand it to her and she's like, I'll read it tonight. The next morning she calls me and she goes, keep writing. Yeah. I said, really? She goes, yeah. She goes, because I want to see, I want to see what happens to this guy. 
I said, really? She goes, yeah. I also, Hollywood always makes it like, you know, Judd Apatow, the director. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, he always has nerds ending up with the hot girls. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Good. We go, she, he says, she says to me, listen, I want to see a good looking guy like you get your ass handed to you in love. Ah. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. And so what happened was I wrote for a year guys, one page a day nice. for 365 days in real time. And what happened was there was a story. There was the old love, the new love, the work thing, all that happened like this. And what it did, it did heal me. But ultimately, I was able to, and this is manifestation. When I was a sophomore in high school, I was sitting at the cafeteria table and I said, guys, someday I'm going to write a book. <laughs> and I had guys, you know, these are all guys on the football team. Like, you, you can't even spell a champion. How the hell are you, how can you write a book? I'm like, trust me, I will live a life worthy of writing, of writing a book. And so out of that nudge by Nancy, I began writing and I actually had something. And in 2005, this was, this was um, published. I, 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 I've been scared to write a second book. I have a lot of ideas. Um, but one of the things that this first book gave me, guys, was the ability to know how to do it way better the, the second time. Like, I know how to do it now. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Like yeah. if you, build, you build your first house, you're making a bunch of mistakes. Yeah. You build a second house, right? You eliminate the mistakes. So, you know, I, I, I do share this in my, in my coaching curriculum. Like, yeah. Hey, if I can write a book, you can write a book. If, 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 if I can do this, you, you could run a marathon, whatever that is. Um, but that, that I want to say that book came out of my recovery. Yeah. Now the book I'm working on right now is, is called recovery A to Z. And it's basically, I take a letter of the alphabet. I attach a word to it. And, and so, so like, um, so like one word would be, so for the P letter, it would be parenting and would be yeah. my observations about parenting. Um, o would be obsession. Mm -hmm. I, the obsession to drink and use guys left between, left between year three and five, the obsession to obsess has never left. <laughs> and that's, that's what I want. We, when we first started talking this morning about emotional sobriety, that's where I'm at now is that, listen, I'm going to have problems. And it's one of those problems is going to take me out either to drink or use or act out in a non-emotional way. And so I've been really working on, on not becoming addicted to food, uh, sex, porn, gambling, um, resentment. Oh, you give me a resentment, even though I have all this time, I'll chew on it for 18 months. Yeah. Yeah. And what a waste of time. Totally. I want to talk about pain real quickly. And, and I think this is something that those of us who are in our kind of age bracket and, and older, not necessarily all having gone through addiction and recovery, but just we get to a place of, of a lot more wisdom. And a lot of us have been through lots of adversity, lots of pain, and we come to these awareness places, these recognitions, and, 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 and all we want to do, especially as parents, is instill this wisdom into the younger generations and say, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to go this way. You don't have to look at a five-year prison sentence to learn your damn lesson. You know, those kinds of things. What would be your, your response to, you know, how do we get, how do we, how do we go upstream with younger generations and help them see things differently maybe not go through so much pain or is pain necessary? I, I can only take my own um, way of, of, of how I approach my parenting, my kids. I, I, I do have three daughters, two of them are, are one, one is 12 and one is nine. And I think the first thing is you have to make a promise to your kids that whatever your childhood was is not going to be their childhood. Okay. And I want you to think about a, the great wall of China. No one's making it over that wall. So nobody's going to be inappropriate with my daughters, right? They're not going to have, um, I'm not, I'm not going to abandon them like my father did when he got, when he died in a drunk on drunk car crash, you know? So if we can eliminate their pain, I'm going to say from, from, if we go zero to 10 to, to somewhere between zero and two, right? Mm -hmm. And if I can get them to 18 years old from zero to two, I've done my job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by it is I got to be present. I got to have adult conversations. I talk to my kids from the time they were little as adults. And you should see the way they hold themselves in a room full of adults. They hold their own. 
-hmm. You know, I also think they need to be able to share their pain. I never tell my kids stop crying. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's a big no, no, like let them cry, you know, especially boys. One of the things I found is the difference between pain and suffering. Pain, we try to avoid suffering. We we can become addicted to. Mm-hmm. because what happens is if the girl breaks up with you suddenly now you have an excuse to, to go oh always me mm-hmm. or this this is why i have the crappy job or the shitty car all of a sudden you start piling on yeah. and you like to sit in it yeah but one of the things that you you are bringing up for me robbie is pain like actual physical pain i've had shoulder surgeries it's unbelievable the pain in shoulders mm-hmm. you know people with hips right and this is a way old timers like us go out because take the pill, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, and all of a sudden we're off and running. Now that is one area that I wish that we could really figure out how to, how to fix, but everybody's pain level is different. Yeah. Um, I just lost a dear friend 10 days ago who he, he, he got everything back. He got the kids back. He got the job back. He got the house back. And, but he had shoulder surgeries, right? And he's dead. Um, so in terms of pain, um, I, I, I just wish I had the answer for you. I think it's, we, we need to do more work, but the, the kids stuff is really, here's the other thing. I can't stand watching parents have their nannies raise their kids. Mm-hmm. You had kids raise your kids. I can't stand parents who send their kids off to boarding school. Why are you having kids? <laughs> okay. And last but not least, Hey, dad's. You're not playing golf on the weekends. You haven't been around Monday through Friday. You're home on the weekends. Be present for your kids. Go to their soccer games. Mm-hmm. This is how I talk to these dads and these yeah. moms on my couch. Good. I, I, I shake the face mask. I do the same thing. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Right, Patrick? Right, hell, Bobby? Hell yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. What are the three your three biggest benefits from removing alcohol from your life? One, sobriety is the anti-aging drug. Uh, I'm 53 years old. I do not look or feel 53. Yeah. Oh, you're beautiful, Greg. You're beautiful. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm just being honest. Yeah. I went to an eight, I went to a reunion this past summer. My wife's taking pictures. She's like, you are standing next to 70 year olds. Yeah. Because these guys were big bellied <laughs> and fat, but, you know, great. Okay? And I'm just sitting there, you know, slim Jim cruising around because guess what? I haven't put poison in my body. Yeah. yeah. You know? So, so anti-aging drug sobriety. Love it. Number two, clarity clarity oh, yeah. mm-hmm. i i i i gotta tell you that it says in the big book intuition right i i have jedi powers now when you sit down on my couch i read your energy before you even open your mouth i know when something's off and i, and I love having that I, I do think sobriety is a superpower mm-hmm. okay and then last but not least what do i have to show for it alcohol never got me a house right never got me the job right? It, 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 I, got, I got beautiful things in my life. And again, one of my key words, guys, and I never said this on the show, you have slow briety. Mm-hmm. You know, I told you guys earlier, I love, I love shortcuts. My sobriety has slowed my life down to appreciate that I have an awesome wife, three great kids, amazing business partners, lots of friends, right? Good health. Um, and that's all happened to because I don't drink or use. And meanwhile, I have friends who are 53 like me who are still hung over on Saturday and Sunday mornings. Yeah. Going to the you know, doctor still, every month. It, 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 and basically, I am a man. I went from being a boy to a man. And there's so many men who are 40, 50, 60 years old who are still doing all this. You're, you're a boy. You're, you, 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 you've lost the reason to live. The, the reason to live is to grow exponentially spiritually so you can pass things along and make that part of your legacy and so i would say three things like real quick anti-aging drug right um being present and clear right having a great memory and intuition and last but not least everything i have in my life i owe to my sobriety Mm. Well, you delivered, Greg. You delivered on the answer. Uh, that was fantastic. So one last question, and this is kind yeah. of our, uh, our final put you on the spot. Greg Champion, why do you care? Oh, my God. Um, yeah, baby. Yeah. Well, Greg Champion, why do you care? Well, 
Guys, I, I'll be real honest with you on this. I, I think it's, it's, it's who I am. And, and what I mean by that is my last name is Champion. And for a lot of years, trying to wake up and, and, and achieve that name every day was a struggle for me. Yeah, it just yeah. is. Yeah. And then a few years ago, I'm sitting around and someone says, you know, you're a pretty good teacher. You're a good boss. You're a good mentor. You really like to help people. It's basically similar to your question. Where do you think you get that from? And I went to Webster's Dictionary and I looked up champion, the word. And the first definition says victor, one who conquers the mountain, the winner. The second definition, someone who champions a cause or is a mentor. Oh, nice. So I'm actually living into my name on a daily basis. And it really does fulfill me that I get to champion your cause. I get to be a mentor to others. And I just operate from that, that, that place. And so when my mom decided to have me in 1968 and not have an abortion, I do feel like she set the tone for, Hey, you're going to go through some lessons in life. You're going to get your ass kicked a few times. Right. But along that way, you're going to help so many people by showing them, Hey, you don't have to go through that pain. You don't have to go through that suffering. And, and I always say this, I said, you know, the greatest gift your mentors give you their mistakes. Mm -hmm. And what I try to do when I work with my daughters and her soccer team, or my sponsees or the people I coach or employees is I try to give them my mistakes. Yeah. Love it. Good Gre stuff, man. Greg champion, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you so much, my man. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot for being here, man. I appreciate all you're doing. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how startup wellness takes root and uh, looking forward to staying in touch, man. Yeah, let's do it. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit DilworthCenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit TheBlanchardInstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.